Dear friends, uh, turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. You'll find the sermon scripture this morning in Genesis 14, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse uh, 17. Please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Uh, Genesis 14, 1 and following. Hear now uh, the very word of God. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh, Kiriathim and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Temar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bilah, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Uh, at this time, the little ones are dismissed to the nursery. Uh, and let us pray now, shall we, and ask God's uh, blessing on the ministry of the word. Shall we pray together? Oh, Father, again, uh, we thank you uh, for this, your holy word, and we pray now with all of our hearts that you would speak uh, words of everlasting life uh, to us, and that you would open to us now this word and feed us with manna, the very bread of heaven. Jesus Christ, our Lord, come down for us. Save us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Nearly 200 years ago, there were two Scottish brothers named John and David Livingston. John had set his mind on making money and becoming wealthy, and he did that. But under his name, in an old edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, John Livingston is listed simply as the brother of David Livingston. While David Livingston, or while John had dedicated himself to making money, uh, David had invested his life as a missionary to Africa and resolved thus. I will place no value on anything I have or possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. The inscription over his burial place in Westminster Abbey reads, For 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize. Two men, two brothers, yet they were motivated by very different interests and both lived very different lives. You will remember that the last time we were together in Genesis, we saw the separation of two men, of Abram and his nephew Lot, because of growing conflict and strife between their respective herdsmen. Owing to the great wealth of these two men, the land in which they dwelt could not support all of their flocks and herds. And we saw how Abram, large-hearted, peacemaking, magnanimous, and generous, now walking by faith and guided primarily by spiritual concerns, gave to his younger nephew the choice of land. And further we saw how Lot, Abram's nephew, walking not by faith but by sight, not deferring to his elder, but taking the decision for himself and considering only his material future, but not sensitive to the spiritual matters that lay before him, lifted up his eyes and saw the fabulously green and well-watered plain of the Jordan Valley and chose that land in which to dwell, which brought him perilously close to the city's of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose men the Bible describes in this way, that they were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Indeed, as 
We read that while Abram began to walk through and possess the land promised to him by Yahweh, that Lot pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. It is an ominous note signaling that Lot has acted as a worldly man and not as a spiritual man, that his foolish and rash decision will have massive consequences spiritually for him and for his family. That in order to gain fertile soil and a pleasing climate and a promising future, Lot was willing to live among wicked men. That material attractions and locality overwhelmed his fear of moral contamination. It's a profound lesson, one that prepares us for the destruction of those cities that we will read about in chapter 19. And as we come now to a new chapter, we find that chapter 14 of Genesis reads like a divine commentary, a divine commentary on the decisions and actions of Lot. Chapter begins with what reads like a secular account of worldly powers that were struggling for power and dominance at this time in history. Here in chapter 14, we have mentioned for the first time in the Bible, war. Wars between kings and between kingdoms. This may puzzle the 21st century reader. The names are hard to pronounce. It all seems to be very remote and disinteresting and dull. On the surface, this incident is merely an international power struggle to ensure economic supremacy by the control of a very crucial trade route. And this is, of course, the secular side of the history. It deals with kings and kingdoms, facts and figures, details and descriptions of what occurred Explanations for these events are almost always that way. They're humanistic and economic and militaristic in nature. But for the Christian, there is another dimension running alongside and always transcendent. It's the spiritual side of history and the concerns and priorities of the kingdom of God. If God is sovereign in history, just as the Bible claims him to be, then his hand is to be seen by us as guiding history, this history, to achieve his kingdom purposes. And so there was a block of nations from the east, four kings of ancient Mesopotamia, Assyria, and Persia, whose combined land covered a vast swath of the ancient Near East, of Western Asia, from the Black Sea down toward the Persian Gulf, including lands that are now part of Turkey, uh, Iraq, and Iran. The dominant king of this alliance seems to have been Kedorlaomer. He was the king of Elam, a Persian kingdom, modern-day Iran. Shinar, his ally, uh, ally, I should say, was the region of ancient Babylon. 
you remember, once ruled by Nimrod. The second alliance was made up of five kings to the south and west of there from the region of the Dead Sea. And this alliance included the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. For 12 years, the kings of the east dominated the southern kings until after 12 years, the five southern kings rebelled attempted to throw off the shackles of the four kings of the east. The eastern kings could not allow this rebellion. They must punish it. Nor, as we read, did this revolt go unnoticed by others in the same plight, according to verses 5 through 7. The economic results of ignoring the insurrection were unthinkable to the kings of the east. The five southern kings controlled the land bridge through which commerce proceeded between Egypt and the east. And through there, the four kings must pass and have access. Whoever controlled this land bridge, therefore, maintained a monopoly on international trade. And so the result was all-out war in the valley of Sidim. The southern kings of the Dead Sea region uh, must have known that they were vastly outnumbered, but they considered losing in battle to be preferable to surrender. The kings of the east under Kedorlaomer brought a massive invasion to which the five southern kings and their armies must have offered little resistance. They were utterly routed as they retreated from the enemy some fell into tar pits in the valley, while others fled to the hills. Sodom and Gomorrah were sacked. Everything and everyone that could be carried off was. That is the secular side of the history. That is what it would have appeared in the Babylon times if there was such a thing. The kingdoms of this world are in competition with one another. They war. They fight for supremacy, for dominance. The worldly powers, the secular city, and all of its leaders, they have their agenda. It is economic. It is political. It is militaristic. We hear it every day, especially this season in the candidate's speeches. The men of the world fight for what their worldly hearts desire. This all affects us to some extent. We are all a part of this. There is an intersection of our lives. But this is our lower allegiance, our lesser kingdom. We are citizens as Christians above all of the kingdom of God and of heaven and its concerns and its priorities, its purposes are uttermost in our minds and it is something different altogether. But there is often an intersection. We see it very often in scripture, a point of contact, an intersection between the secular city and its advances and the spiritual progress of the kingdom of God. And that is precisely what we see here. Though 
unwittingly for Lot, although perhaps predictably, Lot becomes caught up in this secular history, in this international incident, in this war between nations, this fight and struggle between kingdoms. For as we remember from the last chapter, Lot had decided to leave Abraham and had chosen to dwell in the land of the Jordan Valley and to pitch his tent as far as Sodom, which just so happened in the providence of God to be among the cities caught up in this massive war. A city that is now overrun and defeated. And its possessions and its occupants having now been taken captive by the invading and conquering army. Yes, my dear friends, our decisions in this life have consequences. Deep, profound, lasting, massive consequences as we have seen. And this is therefore, in a very real sense, God's word, his commentary on Lot's decision and what that rash, foolish decision led to. Total ruin. Captivity. He is now a prisoner of war. And as far as Lot was concerned, hopeless with nothing to expect but death. One of the ancient Jewish rabbis commented on this and said, quote, it was because of Lot's willingness to live with evildoers that this misfortune befell him. Be careful, little ones. The company that you keep, it will set your life on a trajectory. How unspeakably awful. I grew up in Los Angeles. There are tar pits there, the La Brea tar pits. Uh, Our schools would take little field trips to visit them. You did not want to fall in. Uh, Many ancient animals were trapped in and died in and had been recovered from these tar pits, these desperate men fleeing the invading armies and realizing their hopelessness. Some fell to their deaths in these tar pits, sank down like in quicksand, struggling for their last breath before they died. Others fled to the hills where many were surely found and killed. Some surely starved to death there, died of exposure. Others were captured and taken as prisoners of the Eastern kings. It's how war was fought back then and how war has been fought throughout history. No mercy. Only death and misery and desperation. 
What an unmitigated disaster. All brought upon Lot by a miserable, poor choice. And his captors, they would have no reason to care one whit about him. There was no reason, humanly speaking, to think that Lot should ever be heard from again. They would not have cared that Abram was his uncle, that he himself might have been disinterested in the politics of it all, that he had only been residing in Sodom for economic reasons. Those caught up in war are caught up in war. It doesn't matter how they got there. So Lot was taken, verse 12. We are reminded that he was Abram's brother's son, his kinsman, and that he dwelt in Sodom, and that his goods as well were taken, and that they departed. Lost. Desperate, hopeless, and as good as dead. Now, dear friends, what do you think was going through his mind? One can only imagine uh, the fear, the desperation, the regret. What have I done? What have I gotten myself into? What was I thinking? How did I get caught up into this? Surely I will never see my uncle again. Have you been there, I wonder? That place of desperation and of regret for bad decisions made? A place where you can only cry out to God and beg Him for mercy and plead with Him to save you. For there is nothing that you yourself can do. Did Lot pray, do you think? Did he cry out for deliverance? Did he say, Oh Lord, I have acted very foolishly and done wrong? I am in a desperate situation. Only you can save. There is a spark of light in verse 13. A glimmer of hope by God's mysterious and remarkable providence. There was an escapee. Some unnamed person, also a prisoner, escaped and came and told Abram, the Hebrew. First time the word is used in the Bible. Abram, the Hebrew. And we find now that Abram has allied himself with the Amorites. And we are told in verse 13 that Abram... Uh, or 14, heard that his brother, he heard that his kinsman, his relative, 
Lot had been taken captive. He got the news. Beloved, what do you think? Knowing what we now know about Abram, what do you think was going through his mind? Let Lop, Lot reap as he has sown. You know, there are many people who think that way. Natural consequences. You've made your bed. Now lie in it. You got yourself into this mess. It's your fault. Deal with it. No. Abram is moved with compassion. And his soul yearned over his weak and entrapped relative. And he set himself to deliver him. Now we have said, have we not, that it was not inconsistent to be wealthy and faithful. And now we find that it was not inconsistent to be strong and faithful. For Abram had armed and trained 318 servants for battle, men born in his own house. These men men went in pursuit of Lot far to the north on a rescue mission. Just think of that, beloved. Despite what we saw in Egypt when Abram failed, he was strong and decisive and wise. He was a man of action. He had actively and deliberately trained and armed men of battle to serve him and to fight for him if necessary. Young men of the church, he forms a rescue force of 318 armed and trained men and sends them to recover Lot, his relative. There was a certain fierceness about this man. Yes, men of old were spiritual. They loved God. They trusted in his name. But that does not mean that they were wimps or weaklings or indecisive. They were not perfect, far from it. But they were not weaklings either. Though massively outnumbered, Abram sends his 318 men in divisions, verse 15, and attack the forces of the eastern kings by night and went after them in hot pursuit. There was a military genius here, one that anticipates the later actions of Gideon. A smaller army, set in divisions, confusing the enemy, attacking under the cover of darkness. And they were able, verse 16, to recover Lot 
and his possessions, as well as other women and people that the Bible mentions. Two great truths to see here. The first is this. Abram was not indifferent to the plight of his brother when he heard about his predicament. He loved his brother, and he felt an obligation toward him. He was a man of faith. He was a man of prayer. And as such, he was able to rescue one who was taken captive by the enemy. So it is that men of faith and of prayer are still able to rescue those who are taken captive by the devil and succumb to his will. The Bible says in Galatians 6, Brethren, if any man is overtaken in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And James, at the very end of his letter, says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. You remember, he had said it back in chapter 13. Let there be no strife between us, for we are brethren. Here again, he is a brother to him. And here, being his brother means delivering him from the snare of the devil and from the jaws of death. It's an obligation, beloved, that every brother owes to a brother and every sister to a sister in the body of Christ. Let him who is spiritual restore the one who is weak. Second, we have in this story a glorious picture of the gospel and of the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has Lot done? He's made a foolish decision. He's been guided by worldly concerns. He's walked by sight and not by faith. He has not taken into account the moral and spiritual realities before him. And now he has fallen headlong into the consequences of his sin. He is lost, miserable, hopeless, humanly speaking, as good as dead. He's like every sinner. He's like you. And he's like me. And what kind of Savior do we have? One that says, ah, natural consequences. I told you so. I told you. 
that if you made bad decisions, that if you failed, if you sinned, you would be in a desperate situation. And I think I'll let you suffer the consequences of your miserable choice. In fact, I think I'll let you suffer them forever in hell. Well, hell is exactly what you deserve and exactly what I deserve. But that is not at all what our Lord Jesus does or what he has done for his children. Because of our sin, the powers of hell have taken us captive. The devil has made us subject to his will. He has carried us away as prisoners of his evil kingdom and has put us under his tyranny. In sin, like Lot, we are lost, hopeless, dead, with no possibility of rescue, humanly speaking. But Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our champion, our warrior, not with the power and might of the world's armies, but through the cross, not through loud military forces, but through the weakness and humility and suffering of his cross. Indeed, with something much like Abram's 318 men, much more like that than Kedar Laomer's great army, he rescues us. And in a way inconceivable to the world, in a way that appears to be utter foolishness to the secular powers, he saves us by living, by suffering, by bleeding, by dying, and by rising again. Our Lord, too, is unafraid, decisive, bold. He came on a rescue mission to save us. And that is just what he has done. But not as the world considers salvation. He's saved by the foolishness of the cross. You remember what the psalmist asks in Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Beloved, there was nowhere where Lot could go, where God was not with him. Even where the depths of his sin had taken him, as low as that, Christ was there and was strong to save. And Abram, his friend and brother, came to seek and to save the lost. And so has Jesus, our Christ, for us, our heavenly friend, our elder brother, came to seek and save those lost in sin. And beloved, shouldn't this great truth transform us? Shouldn't it have an impact and change us? Shouldn't it make us more humble and more gracious more merciful and more forgiving 
but more strong in the strength of the Lord, more full of compassion for the weak and for the needy. Shouldn't it cause us to treat others not as we think they deserve to be treated, not to say, I told you so, or you got what was coming to you, or those are the natural consequences for your actions, or I'll reach out to you if you first reach out to me, but instead, armed with the grace and mercy of Christ, to do for others in his name, even if they are unwilling and unable to do for us. Isn't that what it means to forgive as we have been forgiven? Isn't that what it means to love as we have been loved? Isn't that just what it means to be a Christian? What does God do to us when we fail him and when we sin? He saves us. Praise his name. Let's pray. O Lord, write your eternal truth on our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.